This is Brian Young from the Dunstan Group. We thought it was important for you to know that since we recorded this last podcast, our guest Dale Beatty died from a pulmonary embolism. Dale was a decorated combat veteran, a husband, a father, a philanthropist, and a friend. His passion for his work and his country are evident in his words. We hope you'll listen in, and if you are compelled, you can help continue his mission at purpleheartholmesusa.org. You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the Brand Builders Podcast brought to you by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young, and we are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan, and we are here with Dale Beatty from Purple Heart Homes. And, uh, you know, whether it's the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, or the Reserves, the military is arguably the pinnacle of public service. Uh, both honorable and challenging. It can also be dangerous and life-altering service that can leave veterans forever in the need of assistance whenever you know they do return home. Um, our next guest knows something about that, and uh, we're really excited to hear his story. And, and, and he has really started to work with an organization um, that when you come home, they really make it better for you, uh, specifically for returning vets. So thank you so much, uh, Dale Beatty, and uh, welcome to the Brand Builders Podcast. Thank you guys for having me in today. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share stories. Absolutely, Brian, and thank you for the introduction. And first and foremost, Dale, thank you for your service, man. We're, we're very appreciative Thanks, of that. And uh, so and to begin, man, just tell us a little bit about Purple Heart Homes and, and how the program got started. Uh, well, it really, you know, started with service to in the Army National Guard, North Carolina Army National Guard. Myself and John Galena, who is the other co-founder, uh, we both served in the field artillery unit here located around Charlotte. Our local armory was Statesville. That's our hometown, a uh, little ways north, where the, you know, where you have to drive through all the construction barrels to get there yeah. Oh, yeah. nowadays. But, um, <laughs> Very familiar. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we served right there in our hometown where we grew up and, um, both of us joined in 1996. That's how John and I met. Um, we didn't really like each other at first, but, uh, once you're thrown together in, uh, missions and situations and training with the army, you know, we eventually learned to respect each other's best qualities and try to mitigate each other's worst qualities, right? That's how probably what you guys do all day long yeah, but yeah. <laughs> we have to deal with each other we, we try, we try. <laughs> but uh you know i mean some of our first uh things experiences in the in the army and and again we were trained as artillerymen which is you know the conventional war that was fought in world war one and two and korea and vietnam and, and it kind of ended there the last big use of artillery was in uh desert storm they've used some in iraq and the middle east but it's not what it used to be. So, you know, we trained to blow things up, essentially. Shoot a big rifle dozens of miles to, to blow things up for the infantry so they could continue to move on their objective. But the first real deployment I had was for Hurricane Fran and then Hurricane Floyd. Um, not sure which of those came first, but they were both late 90s, early 2000s. And it really destroyed the eastern part of North Carolina. So... In national or state emergencies, the governor can call up the National Guard. That's what we did. We got on trucks, deuce and a half trucks, and drove from, you know, Statesville down to Goldsboro, North Carolina. Uh, and we were deployed around that whole area. 
and it was just devastation from the floodwaters. I mean, people lost everything they owned. Some of them barely escaped with their lives, and we were there for about three weeks, and we're rescuing people from swift water rescue to uh, going to collect all the coffins that had popped up in the cemetery when things flooded to chasing pigs around, uh, <laughs> you know, downtown Goldsboro. Um, so it was very surreal to be put into that type of environment where you had, when you had trained to be, you know, a soldier and here you are doing humanitarian work. So that was interesting that the paradigm involved in that, but honestly it was some of our, some of our best times in the military uh, being able to help fellow North Carolinians as as National Guardsmen. Um, you know, so we did a couple of those, and then uh, late 2003, John had actually already gotten out of the National Guard. He had completed his first six-year enlistment, uh, had gotten out, and he was working as a custom home builder. And um, I had stayed in and became a full-time National Guardsman, so I ran the armory in Statesville. And we got the balloon went up for the deployment to Iraq. And um, we were slated to go in early 2004. We, we were short on strength, so we're calling people who had recently gotten out. I uh, called up John, and I, I offered him a free vacation to a place with lots of sand. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after 9-11, you kind of knew what was going on. Um, we kind of expected we would be sent because the North Carolina uh, 30th Brigade combat team was – the top deployable National Guard brigade in the country. So um, we were first on the list. We were sent with the 1st Infantry Division, just like we were in World War II, surprisingly. So the same two units went in 1943 and then 2004. Um, and really, you know, it was, it was interesting. When I called John that day, he said, I'll be down there in a little bit. Came down to the armory, re-enlisted, you know, we had the officer right there to sign him in, and boom, he was back in the Army, and he had punched his ticket to go on that vacation to Iraq. Wow. wow. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that really just speaks volumes about, you know, the, the esprit de corps, the, brother, the brotherhood, the, the friendships that you, that you establish being in the military. And, um, you know, we wanted him to go with us because he was our friend. We knew him, and it's better – for the evils you know than the evils you don't know sometimes. But, uh, you know, it, it really speaks strongly to the relationship and the bond that we share as, as service members. So went to Iraq. Uh, we were the hearts and minds soldiers in early 2004. So the 3rd Infantry Division came in, and, you know, the ground war was pretty much over. Um, they had destroyed a lot of the country's infrastructure. Um, people were just in disarray, and it was our task to go in and instead of kicking somebody's door and search them, you know, our, our SOP was to put our rifle on our back and knock on the door and ask if we could search. You know, we were trying to establish relationships with the Iraqi people to let them know we were, we were there to help to protect them. I mean, they were ending 2,000 years of dictatorship, and they had no idea how to react to having um, – some sort of ownership of their country. And so it was our goal to build relationships with them and work with the Iraqi people to have them point out the bad guys to us. Um, and had a lot of missions there. We were, we were there for about 10 months. Um, and then on November the 15th, 2004, we were on a 
uh, a mission west of our base, um, out in the middle of nowhere, really, in the desert. And we were in an up-armored Humvee and ran over two anti-tank landmines. Uh, they exploded pretty much right underneath the front tire on my side. I was in the passenger seat. John was driving. And, you know, that was really, I think, the instant that uh, changed our lives dramatically and led to the formation of the charity because um, after that I, I went to Walter Reed. I eventually I lost my right leg the same day and then eventually had elective surgery and had my left leg amputated. So I became a double amputee um, and spent a year at Walter Reed uh, going through lots of surgeries, lots of rehab therapy, um, and you know getting healthy again. John got off the airplane. He actually got hurt, went back to work. And then when he came home in about January, early February, he um, was out of the Army. Got off the airplane. They're like, thanks for your service. You're out. You're done. And so he went back to work. And we had two very different transitions back into society. You know, I had a, a year's worth of rehab at the hospital. John got off the plane and went back to building houses. And so, you know, we, we both had two very different experiences at the end of a shared same experience. And so I think that really opened our eyes to how everybody does come home from war. Um, honestly, you know, I was so severely wounded and guys like me who are missing limbs or spend a lot of time at the hospital, there's really no question of my injuries. I can walk into a room and, you know, if I'm wearing shorts, you're like, oh, yeah, he's a veteran or at least that. Uh, thought pops into people's minds. John suffered some back injuries, um, traumatic brain injury. I think we both struggled a little bit with post-traumatic stress at some point in time. Um, and so it was just very interesting to see the, how the injuries affected us. And um, so anyway, 2005, I was still at Walter Reed. Uh, during that time, I was trying to build a house in Statesville, my dad gave me some land. I started building. The local home builders association showed out and wanted to help support the build of my home. And I was really the only veteran from that area that had been injured. And uh, there were a few that had been killed, but I was the only one that had a family. And, and so it was very community oriented where people said, hey, this is something we need to get involved with. We believe that we want to help this family out and built a great house in Statesville for me and my family. It was a great experience. And literally, I, and I tell this story a lot, um, one day we were, you know, working on the house, doing raising walls or framing or something. Uh, I, I was the general contractor. My dad was my superintendent, which is pretty much how every <laughs> job goes. The most experienced guy is a superintendent. The contractor just kind of keeps things moving. Um <clears throat> You know, I looked and there was literally World War II veteran, Korean War veteran, Vietnam veteran, Gulf War, and Iraq veterans there volunteering and helping build a house for me. And not all of those areas of service have, actually none of them have ever been treated or recognized for their service like post 9-11 veterans have. And at the hospital, you know, I, I saw all these charities being developed in, um, you know, 2004, 2005, and, you know, I've heard some stats like 90% of all military charities that have been formed since 9-11 are just to help post 9-11 vets. 
And so I had this great experience after tragedy. You know, me and my family had lots of love showered on us from the community, and um, we were, I was just very grateful. It was a good healing factor for us. Uh, but then we, John and I kind of stepped back and said, you know, what about the older guys? What about the Vietnam veterans who have never received that type of love from their community? Where are they at now? And what can we do to impact it? Because honestly, when you almost lose your life, uh, ambition in the rat race just goes away. You know, you're, you're uh, what can I do that's, that's going to make a difference in the world? Or what can I do that's going to positively impact and, and um, do things that are not geared towards making money or getting a nice car or having a lot of stuff that, that really doesn't matter. Um, so we kind of did a little research and, and John said, you know, we got to do something. And, and that was kind of the formation of Purple Heart Homes. And about mid 2007, we started working on it. 2008, we officially formed as a charity and we fundraised for like a year and a half and then did our first project in 2010 for a Vietnam vet. And in the process of doing that project, we sat, we're sitting at the kitchen table with, with the veteran, Kevin, much like we are here. And we said, you know, Kevin, we're going to help you. We're going to build you a ramp and we're going to build you a deck so you can safely get from your car to your house in your wheelchair. And by the way, thank you for your service and welcome home. And he immediately broke down crying and said, nobody's told me that in 37 years. And so that really, we were like, huh. Why is that? And how many other guys like that are out there? And then we really delved into the numbers and the, the actuality of what our veteran population is in the country. And, you know, there's something like 20-plus million veterans. We really – it's kind of a hard number to track. Uh, but 4 million of those are service-connected disabled. So that means they have an injury or a disability that was incurred during their time in the military and – Probably another 4 million have the same types of disabilities and have never gotten them determined by the VA. So, you know, it's out of 330 million people to have 20 million veterans is actually pretty significant. And we hear a lot of numbers thrown out like oh, only 1.1% are actively serving, but it's not about that. It's about the whole population. There's still World War II veterans alive, like my grandfather, uh, all the way up to people that are serving now. And it represents a pretty large segment of our population, especially when you consider in the average that they each have three family members on average. So, boom, just multiply that number by three. Now we're talking about a real significant percentage of our population in the country that is a veteran, is directly related to a veteran, or and then even take it to the next step out, that next little ripple, what's the connection? A lot of people in the community might be connected to their neighbor. So, you know, that, that really showed us that the numbers are a little different than what's portrayed on the news or on the media or by other charities that just want to help or are just focused on helping post-9-11 veterans. And so our, our actual research pointed to that like 75% of, veteran, of the veteran population um, are Vietnam era or older. And so those guys have the same type of needs that I have for my house. Maybe not as extreme as an amputee does, but either age or injury or, or disability, 
Um, they can't get into their homes. They can't get out of their homes. They can't use the restroom without assistance. And so we started Purple Heart Homes just to help veterans like us, regardless of age or era or regardless of even if they served in combat or not, they had merit to their service. And we wanted to provide that same experience that I had for them in their homes so they can live with dignity and feel appreciated by their community. That's awesome, man. And you guys, um, you're celebrating 10 years. That's a great accomplishment. And um, you've now expanded into eight states and helped over 150, probably more now, veterans. Tell us a little bit about some of those specific projects and and tell us kind of what the future holds for Purple Heart Homes. Well, we are a, um, it's actually over 312 projects um, in about 30 different states. Um, we have expanded with chapters. Um, I think we can say nine states now because uh, Nashville, Tennessee just started a chapter and they excellent they came on. We're working in other areas, um, and it's people that really have we've met and we've influenced them with our philosophy, and they want to have that in their town because there are a lot of veterans that are left behind. Um, but the chapters have been the model for growth for us. Uh, as a as a smaller nonprofit, we recognize we can only affect so many um, from our sphere of influence here in North Carolina. We've done probably over 50 projects here in North Carolina alone. Uh, a lot in the Charlotte area, Statesville, Winston, Hickory, you know, here in western North Carolina. Um, and and really, we we just felt like we weren't impacting the numbers we needed to. I mean, come on, 300 out of 4 million? It's like we're barely even making any progress there. So we wanted to empower other communities to do that, and that's really, I think, the strength of our brand in that other people want it. They want to be a part of it. They want to have that same mission. And so, um, you know, while while we, you know, that first year in 2010, we did one project. We were completely out of money. And had to start immediately fundraising again. Now we're we're got on the schedule up in uh, in our office in Statesville. You know we're going to do sixty projects this year. The chapters will probably do twenty to twenty five, and then through some of our other affiliate type programs, partnerships that we've started, they'll do another twenty projects. So we're getting average of a hundred projects a year, and that was a goal we set you know about five years ago that we want to be doing a hundred projects a year. But I think it's it's the strength is in our chapters, and that is our growth model, um, and that you know there's at least one chapter in every state uh, that can that can serve veterans' needs, and, and frankly, some states need more than one chapter. So um, that is our growth model for the future, and, and I think it's really going to be able to impact numbers. And Purple Heart Homes will continue to be around. There's always going to be a need for. Uh, the type of services we provide to to veterans and their families, and uh, especially you know, you know, we were told the wars in the Middle East ended, but there's guys right now fighting on the ground right now in Syria, in Iraq, um, in Afghanistan, and God knows wherever else. But um, there's always going to be a need for that. But I, I think it really is our philosophy of being treating or serving the entire veteran population that people want to be a part of that. They want to own it. And 
We want them to own it. And one thing I wanted to mention, you, you, you talked about mental health and you talked about, you know, post 9-11. And it seems like a lot of people are, are creating charities to help out post 9-11 veterans, which is awesome. Uh, I remember exactly where I was in 9-11 and, and I couldn't believe kind of how tight the country came. You know, like the, the, the months after 9-11, our country was as unified as it's ever been. What do you think the leading characteristics are, or what are the reasons why, why people maybe have forgotten about the Vietnam vets? And then B, what is something that people can do that maybe aren't in the military to, to make sure that that doesn't happen? Is it, you know, going up and saying, you know, thank you for your service? Is it getting involved? Like from a, from a veteran yourself, what can our population do to not only tell World War II vets and, and Vietnam vets that we appreciate them and we still appreciate them? Because without them, we wouldn't have anything that we have today like, what can we do on our end to make that a better transition or, or do our part to say thank you? Well, first of all, I'm not going to speak on anything on mental health because, <laughs> you know, I was in the Army and in the field artillery. So, um, <laughs> no, no, I, I, that's a good question. I, I, um, I think it, it starts with shaking their hand and saying thank you for your service, but that's not enough. Um, we we kind of have to look at societally and, and, and like you said, you know, it's kind of petered out. It's, it's not the level it used to be where people are USA, USA, you know, and, um, specifically for the Vietnam veterans, you know, you have to look at the, the times then our country was in turmoil because most of the country were against the war. Uh, these guys were, some of them were, were drafted, you know, really had no choice um, except to go to Canada or go to Vietnam. Um, so a lot of guys elected to go to Vietnam. And when they come home, they, they were doing a job they were forced to do. Uh, they lived through horrible conditions. They saw their buddies get uh, blown away beside them. Uh, they had to do and perform their job just to survive and get back home. And as you come back home, you're spit on or trash is thrown at you and you're called a baby killer and, and things like that. And many of them, you know, many of those guys never engaged in anything negative in, in country. And so, and I think that really affected them mentally, uh, morally. They, they may have had a physical injury and earned a Purple Heart for it and then came home and, and there's no value in their uniform or that award because people are are bashing them. And so I, I think it's an interesting paradigm for the remainder of their lives that they've lived for the past 40, 50 years after Vietnam. And, and then post 9-11, a lot of Vietnam veterans started having post-traumatic stress, started developing post-traumatic stress. It came bubbling to the surface, right? They had been okay for a number of years, but you know, being attacked on our own soil and then seeing young troops get sent off to war. And, and it was kind of a, a flashback for them in a way. And, you know, then they see how we're treated when we come home. And they're proud that I'm not being spit on, right? They're, they're happy that that's not happening to us. And, and many, many conversations I've had with Vietnam veterans, they're like, oh, don't worry about us. We're just glad it's not happening to you, and, you know, I'll be damned if I let it happen to you guys. You know, their, their conviction is that strong because they lived through it. 
But for us, a lot of those Vietnam veterans are withdrawn. They don't put themselves out there. They don't identify as a veteran. They're not going to ask for help. Um, they don't like the VA. And, and I think it's, you know, with all the struggles the VA has had, um, they're afraid to go in there and try to get the help they need from the VA just because of the, the culture of the 60s and 70s and um, how they were treated going there. And then you look at the other side of it is Iraq and Afghanistan veterans have, like, the gold card at the VA. We get to go to the front of the line. You know, we're, you're going to be treated in less than – you're going to be seen in 30 days. Nobody ever did that for the Vietnam vets. And so I think it's – that society recognizes all of these faults that we've had what for whatever reason – it's that, you know, it was bad at one time and now it's really good and that people recognize there is a difference between the way Vietnam vets came home and the way I came home. And even the Gulf War, you know, 92. I mean, I was in seventh grade. I, that was the first war I watched on TV. I'm like, oh, yeah, shock and awe. Yeah, that, right? We were all glued to that. And, you know, those guys, there was such a quick war and it was over, came home, had their – parade down Fifth Avenue in New York City, and then what happened? They went back to work, just like World War II did, just like Korean veterans did, and and they went back into the workforce. And so um, Gulf War veterans have their own set of issues, like Agent Orange is called Gulf War Syndrome, and they think it's from chemical exposure and uh, or from vaccinations that they received before going overseas because they had to move so fast. So I think it's it's up to us to keep talking about it, keep keep putting it out there in society to make people think that, okay, let's really look at this from the 30,000-foot view and, and look at the history of, of what has happened with our military because, you know, post-traumatic stress is not new. Um, the play Ajax, if you read the play Ajax, uh, which is an old Greek play, right? thousands of years old, Ajax is suffering from post-traumatic stress. And, uh, you know, I'll leave it to you to go, the listener to go research that, but um, it, it's up to us as a society to look and, and recognize why these things happen, maybe not even determine the answer of why it happened, but to be able to recognize it for what it is and, and ensure that everybody's getting a fair shake in the deal. What what does a veteran have to do uh, to take advantage of the services you're offering uh, with Purple Heart Homes and building out their home and making it easier for them to live their daily lives? Well, I mean they they can connect with us on our website. They you know we have a process. They have to fill out an application. They have to prove to us they are a veteran. Uh, we do a, a criminal background check just to keep everything on the up and up. Um, and, and most importantly, they, they need to, they have to display a need, right? And we have so many that are on our books and, and just determining which ones we're going to help with the limited budget we have, uh, is very, very difficult. Uh, at one time it was first come first serve. Now it's, it's, it's similar to first come first serve, but we really put priority on, um, say, uh, a Vietnam veteran that has had to go into rehab for a knee replacement. Well, now we're finding out with the new regulations that are in place, 
the rehab facility will not release them back to their home unless there's a ramp for them to ride into their home in a wheelchair. So if they don't have a ramp and they can't afford a ramp, they're going to be held at the rehab facility until they get their house fixed. So the doctor will sign off on that. So for us, it's that we want that guy to get home so he can recoup at home, be in his home, be comfortable, um, and being able to react quickly to that to go build a $1,000 ramp so uh, a 72-year-old woman caregiver can push her husband into the home in his wheelchair. You know, there, there's real value in that time and those dollars being spent because we're making an immediate impact on that family. Um, but really, you know, pe- they, people can reach out to us through our website. They can call us, and, and there is a process, and, uh, you know, we try to be fair. We, we try to really spend our funds where they're going to be most impactful. Um, but really, all, all people have to do is to reach out to us, and, and we'll engage. We may not be fast, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, we that's, that's really our challenge, having – a hundred projects on the books, having another stack of a hundred to get to next year, you know, and then on top of that, having people calling us for triage services that, Oh, I, I, my, my dad needs a ramp tomorrow before he can get released from rehab. And we just simply don't have the capacity to react to all of that. So it's, um, you know, I, and I think because we are veterans, because we have a lot of veterans on our staff or, uh, spouses of, of former veterans on our staff, people trust us. We we speak the lingo. The veterans will come to us and ask for help, or um, at least they'll ask their friends about us who may have had some interaction with us, and then they're more trustworthy and more, more willing to ask for help. Um, maybe it's just because we have nice people answering the phones that care, mm-hmm. right? But we are here, and uh, we, we do want people to to just ask, just say, hey, I'm a vet. I need some help here. I can't afford this. I need it. And that's where it starts, asking for help. What What's your number one need as an organization? And if folks are interested in getting a hold of you and, and your team, uh, how do they do that? And when I, when I ask about the number one need, I'm sure it's financing, sponsorships, folks getting behind the cause, wanting to participate. You know, yeah, how do they I mean, reach out? What do you need? You know, it's the same as any other business. We just happen to be a nonprofit. It's about cash flow, right, guys? Yeah, absolutely. It's about <laughs> operational capacity. Um, it's about how many people you have on your team and how much payroll you can afford to, to shell out. And unfortunately for us, we have to do that in a percentage that is judged by everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're not 80 cents on a dollar going into our programs, we're a perceived bad charity. Right. Well, a for-profit business can put 80% into the CEO's pocket, you know, right? Right. I mean, you get well, that kind I, of I, cut. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but some other ones. Some do, I guess. It's, <laughs> it's acceptable to do that for a for-profit business. For us it is not as a charity. And and so we're very restricted and relegated to the the laws of of nonprofit works. And and yes, I would have to say that Scott it, it is it's cash flow. It's it's resources. Um, it, it's a really a ten dollar a month donation for the year, one hundred and twenty dollars a year. You know, or you know somebody that wants to write a much bigger check, they're always more than welcome to. 
Hmm. And, and you could just go to our website, which is uh, purpleheartholmesusa.org. Um, you could connect with us through Facebook, message us that way. Um, those are the two best ways to connect with us. Or call the office, and all the information and contact information is on our website. Um, and it also displays our programs and has examples of what our projects uh, have been and, and has the stories of veterans on there. But, um, you know, right now we're, we've just purchased a new building in, in Statesville. Um, we got a lot of great stuff on the horizon. Uh, we have 18 employees on staff. We're continually working every day to, with dozens, dozens of veterans. Um, and so it, it really is for a nonprofit. It is unrestricted cash that we can use to continue to operate and pay the light bill. Uh, is is greatly needed, but also, you know, a professional donating his services, his or her services, be it legal, be it, um, you know, building materials, be it uh, professional labor. We have a lot of that, that that comes out, and most of those people are veterans or have a direct connection to a veteran, and they say, you know, my uncle served in Vietnam, and he, he passed away because of Agent Orange uh, exposure, and you know, I, I believe in what you guys are doing. I'm going to give you 50% off my HVAC bill, you know. And so any of those things, you know, cash, donated in-kind services, donated professional services, volunteerism, and, um, you know, working on one of our projects or volunteering to host a fundraiser for us with a small group you may have or a, a civic club you may have, Um really just to connect with us and, and be a part of supporting that overall mission is, is huge for us. And so the, the bigger our network grows, the, um, you know, the, the more capacity we'll have. We, we started a giving club about a year ago. It's called Hearts of Honor. If you go to our website at phhusa.org, you can check out the Hearts of Honor Club, and you can sign up you know, for as little as $10 a month, or you can give $200 a month. Uh, and that there's different levels involved and different kind of benefits involved with that. But if you sign up at the $10 a month level, we're going to send you a newsletter every quarter. We're going to send you examples of your dollars at work and, and show you what we're doing with your money, show you the veteran going up the ramp, you know, and so you can stay connected with that. Um, and that giving club is bringing in about $7,000 a month right now with about 170 members. So 170 people equals $7,000 a month for us. That, that's, that's a ramp, right? It's still not paying salaries. It's still not paying the vehicle bills and, and uh, power bills and things like that for our facility and operational expense. So really for us, it's, it's that unrestricted capital we can use to invest in these veteran projects and invest in our – uh, our team and our network to continue to grow it all across the country. Excellent, man. And well, thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, guys, if you're listening to this, uh, he mentioned doing more. If you guys have any questions, reach out to me and Scott. We'll get you in touch with them. We would love for you to support uh, Purple Heart Homes. And, and thank you so much for your service. Thanks for coming on our podcast. We wish you the best. We'll definitely follow your story and, and hopefully be able to get involved as well. And, uh, and thank you so much, man. Thanks, guys. Thank looking you, forward to our uh, next order we're getting from you. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you, looking sir. And thank you for that. Keep up the great work. We're very yeah. appreciative of it. Man. And, uh, Thanks, guys. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.